Hello, Seasoners! This is a very special day in that it is the third anniversary of my first season. Yes, that same podcast I started in a closet and continue to record in a closet is now three years old. Can you believe it? So thanks to everyone who came on this journey with me. A special episode calls for a special guest, and we last spoke a year ago when his episode aired in February of 2023. He is back as promised, and we're here to talk about his first season as a chief of village at Club Med Sonora Bay in 1998. More importantly, we will talk about the role of Achieve a Village and how you have to be a combination of things and the positive impact you have to have as Achieve a Village on everyone you come across. We will also get into the Chief of Village selection process, the Chief of Village stage that my guest was a part of, and the unusual request that he made to HR in terms of the geos that he wanted on his team as a first season Chief of Village. He did a whopping 39 seasons in Club Med Villages and 15 years in the Miami Club Med office. He is the Senior Director UDT, which stands for University de Talent, which translates to Talent Development in the Clement office in Miami. I am, of course, talking about the one and only, the incredible, the Iron Man, the always positive, the man, the myth, the legend. He's probably going to kill me for saying this again. It's Hammer Time. And please help me welcome Chris Keeley, a.k.a. Hammer. Hammer, how are you? I'm great. Now, I think I got to come back every year just to hear you do that intro. <laughs> Quite the pump up, right? I mean, you feel you feel energized now. I do. <laughs> I've never lost the ego all those years. <laughs> all right. So, uh, thanks for joining me at the the third season anniversary. Who would have thunk it? But here we are, three years later. Thanks again for coming back. Well, thank you. I got to say it again. Also, uh, similar to last year, a big congrats to you. I'm sure uh, you've uh, exceeded your expectations, and I know everybody that listens in. Loves it more and more, and I know your your listeners are growing. So congrats on the third. And again, I'll repeat, bravo on your being an ambassador to Club Med, always shining a bright light on it. Because I know you believe in the in the club as a, as a place to work and as one of the best vacations in the world. So yes, bravo sir. to you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So how shall we start off this hour, sir? Well, I love that. I mean, I know we exchanged a bit uh, here and there, and... Uh, Love the idea that we both came up with. We have a My First Season podcast, so today we'll turn into My First Season as a Chef de Village, as you mentioned. So, quick word on Chef de Village, which works in English and French, doesn't Chef de Village. It's not just me we're talking about, especially when we start. It's the whole culture of Club Med, 73, almost 74 years of Club Med, that I'm not sure you have a Club Med without a Chef de Village, because... The first chef de village was Gerard Blitz, our founder. Our co-founder, Gilbert Trigg, and all his son, Serge, was a very famous chef de village, who then became the CEO in follow-up after Gerard and, uh, and Gilbert. And as you know, culture in a company, where we have a very positive, very he healthy culture in Club Med, spoken about by a, a lot of people, is passed through stories. And in the early years, chef de villages were the storytellers. They were entertainers, animators was the word often used, not only because it was a French word, but that was the phrase. We animated a table, as we do today. We animated the, the bar ambience. We animated at the ski dock, a water ski. You had 50 people waiting in line to ski, yet they had a great time on the ski dock. So that culture of making sure people had a great time, team, GO, GE, GM, everybody included, was first projected and, and defined by all these chef villages. And that culture was protected. The club med spirit was projected. The emotional attachment that, that everybody has from the club 
was passed on from season to season and location to location by the Shetzalad. And lastly, and this was really the year to years that created this, the Shetzalad was the one who set the tone, and the tone was always meant to be fun, which is why it was a club, not a business with a staff and clients. It was a club with geos and G's. So it's a noble position, Shetzalad. And if you were to try to put words to it, it's a team leader, it's a general manager, it's a creator of happiness, and it's a showman, meant non-gender. It's a, a show woman, show person, show man. So the uh, the early people in the 50s and 60s, they had to understand and transmit and pass to their team why we started these crazy signs, which springs from Tahiti, by the way, French Polynesian, the way uh, the Tahitians would welcome people to their islands by their hula dances, wearing their puka shells, etc. The puka shells became the bar beads. The crazy signs came from the way the Tahitians moved in their perios. The perio dress code came from the Tahitians. So much came from the French Polynesia. But nobody knew why, except the Chateaulages, because they just they embraced that culture and, and, and passed it along, you know. So not to speak from a personal ego having been a chef de for 10 years, but from reality, the chef de village became the ultimate leader by example and had to become the superstar. They carried the weight, and I'd say today, carry the weight of the village on their shoulders. So by their background of entertainer, comedian, actor, uh, soldier, many of them were uh, you know, from the military, disciplined but fun people, they had to become the star of the village, then to show all their geo team how to be stars of the village. So that's my intro break. That's a pretty good intro. <laughs> and would one of these early innovators that uh, you talk about, would them, one of them be Bellings? Yeah, it would go so far back. I'm sure many of the listeners wouldn't even know the names. Bellings was very famous. He was actually Belgium secrets, not secret service, but like the SAS in England or the Navy SEALs actually would be a good example of what Belling, where Bellings came from. And, you know, a quick story. When the club started in North America, they were all charters. They were private club med charters leaving from JFK to Guadalupe Martinique. Well, you had charters of 300 people. So two flights of 300 would fly into Martinique with 300 guests all fired up. Well, the chef de village and the Joes would fly from the village to JFK in Perio, in the JFK airport at the Club Med kiosk and welcome people. And the first things Bellings and the team would do is they'd take a big pair of scissors. And if anybody was wearing a tie, they'd cut the tie off because they had to set the tone that no, 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 no. Forget the real world. You're coming to forget your troubles. You're coming to Club Med to have fun. So that was their signal. But every once in a while, you'd have, you know, shall we say an uppity New Yorker, which is possible. And when they got a little bit out of line or didn't like something, well, Bellings would take care of things. And again, remember, I'm going back five decades here. So he was very famous. We had an act. My first chef village was a gentleman named Christian Fella, very famous French actor for the movies. You had a Ben Jacobi musician. A lot of them were musicians, comedians, played four or five instruments. Amazing talents. Always the ones creating the numbers on stage. The chef village always had the, the main part in the show. Less so today as you want to kind of put your team in front and take the reins a little bit more. Then just by default, by necessity, it was all leadership by example. So after the entertainment came a lot of the uh, sports stars. Because a lot of the chiefs of sports 
in Quebec in the early 50s, 60s were very front stage. So they learned quickly the essence and the necessity of, of creating that bond with the gym because they were front stage for the sports. Most of the early chatelages came through the sports or entertainment. So then you had to be the best skier in the ski show. You know, you had to not only be the best on stage, but you had to be the best athlete. And the chef village had to take a good partner volleyball and then be the best two-on-two volleyball team. It it became part of the culture to be a creator of happiness, creator of dreams, but to be revered. Sounds too much, and it sounds egotistical today, which is why it's been balanced somewhat. But then that position needed to be the leader in uh, in all the sense, you know. There was one, uh, I'll, I'll revert back to him a little bit later, maybe, because he, he was part of my Chateaulage training. There's even um, a gentleman named Ali Imam, one of the early uh, Chateaulages. He started as a GE in the back, like dishwashing, became a GO, chef de service or responsive service, chef de village for years and years and years. And there was a book written about him in Europe. It's, it was a, a very well-selling book just called Ali. That's how famous uh, how famous he was in Europe. So, yeah, yeah, no, it was um, almost larger than life, 50s, 60s, 70s, and early 80s for Chef Village. Yes, and all these chief of villages, no matter what year, whether it was the 50s, 60s, or 70s, all went through a chief of village selection process. So would you like to talk about your selection process in the late 90s? Yeah, it was, things evolve, of course, and we never had a chance. I don't think you and I both did uh, the, the, the sports Achieve a sports stage way back when, which was selective in those days. It was, you know, who's the best athlete and who's the best runner and who's the most outgoing. So it was a little competitive, shall we say. So in the days of actually all those years, 70s, 80s, 90s also to the early 2000s, nobody knew what people thought of them to become a chatelage. You were just trying and you you were taught by your chatelage and other chatelages and other RDS and people who passed by for, from the office and you asked for advice. And so you wanted to learn, put in your backpack of knowledge, what are the qualities, what are the competencies, what are my behaviors I need to demonstrate to become a chef de village? So as you learned those, you tried to demonstrate them in your RDS position. As we spoke about last time, you know, last minute when I was in the village of Kevin Bad and then Lulu and Turquoise, you know, one night they present you as the newest chief of village in Club Med. You didn't even see it coming. And at that point, off we went in those years for about five months into Paris, the Chateaulage stage. During that training, which was a lot in Paris office, a lot about uh, business people, clients, uh, bringing in professional and experts from different areas, working with business consultants, uh, organizational um, optimization consultants. And then we would go into villages. We were all sent for two weeks during Christmas and New Year's to shadow a Chateaulage. So I went to Opio, just missed you, in fact, and Ali Man was the chef de l'age there. And the wisdom that you got from that era of chef de l'age was just amazing. I mean, you'd, you'd go buy a big cocktail and we'd be leaving the big cocktail for a group. And he'd say, he'd stop the golf cart. I have to tell you something. Don't ever give anything without a return on the investment. Never stop being kind. Never stop demonstrating the clubman values and the clubman spirit. But in the world of business, you give a cocktail, what are you going to get on that? Are they happier? Are they going to spend extra money? Are they going to return? So he, even at that period and be, having that profile of what everyone considered just the animator, in fact, most were excellent businessmen and uh, knew how to uh, satisfy clients to, re- to to create return business. It seemed like in front, I'm just a showman, I'm an animator, but I'm running 
a million dollar resort with tons of responsibility. And that exists today. The Shetralaj today has got to deliver on people, business, client results with his team and have all these other departments. I have a group coming. I need you to do this with the IT. Me, I need you to do this training. It's an incredibly centralized position where everybody needs something from you and you have to deliver. But while they they keep that showman profile in front, behind, you know, they're managing a team of 600, they're managing a budget of millions, et cetera. So not, I would not want to just say it's complicated. It's just, it's not comparable. It's just not comparable because it's GM of the Hilton plus showman. It's GM of the Wyndham plus managing a team directly. It's uh, uh, the manager of uh, Four Seasons, but I've got to be on stage to have people see me all the time. A lot of the listeners, and you know it, Greg, you know, there's that old phrase that used to drive Chef Village crazy, and I heard it for 20 seasons. You would be everywhere, and you would be on stage, and you would do a tour of the village, and you would be giving out fruit during the fruit massage. You'd be at the entrance of the restaurant. I mean, you would be everywhere, and some guests would find time to say, ah, you're the chief village. Mm, haven't seen you. And you'd go crazy. <laughs> Because at the end of a week, you could get a million guests saying, oh, man, the chatelage was great. Oh, really? Why? Oh, because she was everywhere. And you used to laugh internally going, really? That's how you, you evaluated your village? But in command, <laughs> along with the responsibilities of general manager, team leader, business leader, showman, you had to be and have to be present. It's an expectation in the culture. We've got to see the chatelage, which is why the chatelage knows you got to see the geos. During your stage, as I, I like the story you told me, and to further better yourself, you wanted to know who the best chief of village was. Do you mind telling our listeners which name kept coming up? I love how you always bring me back to the point after I get lost, Greg. <laughs> yeah, so while I was traveling these villages, and especially in Opio at that time, I would do a lunch and dinner with the guests all the time, as we did anyway, but I specifically wanted to. And I was ruthless with the guests. And these were a lot of repeater French guests that had been all over the world of Club Med, remembering that 80% then and 65, 60% of our guests maybe are still French and European. So I would always ask them, you know, have, where have you been here, here? Oh, who's your chief village? Oh, really? If you had to say, and you don't have to tell me anything negative, is or was the best ship alive you ever, uh, you ever had a vacation with? And I would just collect all these names. But what I would always follow that up with was why. And that's what I was doing it for. I needed to know what impressed them, what made them have a great vacation because of a Chateau And that went into my backpack of knowledge. But side note, of course, I'm sure everybody by now is wondering what the answer was. By far and away, granted this was 1998, but by far and away, the name that kept coming up all the time was Patrick Kelvey. Okay, yes, I've heard that name quite often myself too. Which was interesting because my first or second, I guess, my if I had to throw them out there, my, my three principal mentors were uh, Philippe Kelvey, Patrick's brother, Jose Aliel, and Kevin Bat. But it was funny in that Philippe was my first papa, so to speak, uh, along with Jose. And here they were telling me Patrick Calvey. So the Calvey brothers were the stars. And what was your relationship with ex-Chief of Village Bob Fagan? That was part of it. And we'll, we're in that range now, which is training and getting ready for my first village, which had been announced to be Sonora Bay. You know, part of the the culture of the club or, or um, something that always happens is that transition between chef villages. It's a big event when the chef village transitions, but there was no chef village in Sonora Bay because the village would close and open during periods. So as I was coming through Scottsdale, the manager of the entire Scottsdale office, Bob Fagan, ex-Geo Village, American, 
invited me to come through there. And he, again, taught me just by example how somebody like that was treated and how somebody coming to run a village in his backyard should be treated. And we went out to dinner, we spoke, we exchanged, and he gave me everything. But he told me that. He goes, you know, never forget this. That's It's a special group of people. And uh, uh, GOs, Gs, GMs, everybody is valuable. You told me, don't get me wrong, but you, you've got to maintain this culture of the importance of the position of Sheth So it wasn't just, wow, you're great. Let me add your ego. It was a responsibility to have that position. He really set me up to go into Sonora Bay. So yeah, Bob Fagan was running the Scottsdale office. And I should say another, a couple, as I was leaving Paris to Scottsdale and then Sonora Bay, uh, Frankie Gagan, who was the ex-Chief of Village, managing the evolution and the career of the Châtelages at the time, he gave me a little secret just before I left, which we'll touch on a little bit later. He said, hey, by the way, when you go into a village, always have a, a real close get-together with all your geos the night before you open. I said, okay, I'm going to keep that in mind. And then as I was uh, speaking to Bob Fagan about the five months, he kind of laughed. And he said, you know what? I was just talking to Mike Coltman, an ex-Chief of Village, a great one who, who was really strong with his teams from England. He said, Mike and I were talking because uh, I said you were coming in. He goes, hmm, back in the day, we didn't have a six-month stage. Our stage was 20 seconds. And I said, what are you talking about, Bob? He goes, well, when everybody left Gilbert's Trigano, Gilbert Trigano's office to go to their first village or their next village, Gilbert would stop them at the door and say, oh, Mike or Bob, just a moment, yes? They'd say, one last thing. And Gilbert would say, take care of your geos, and your geos will take care of the GMs. And so I put that one in the backpack too. And I, I'd already believed that because I was a geo, but it was so impactful. It's like, you can't do it all yourself, but you really got to have the interests of your geos in mind. And they have to believe that then they will fight not only for the gym and themselves, but for you to do a great season. So never forgot that. In your intro, I mentioned that you made two unusual requests when building your team. And this would probably surprise a lot of people what you requested. Do you mind? Telling the listeners what you requested and why. Yeah, that's it. And you know, it still exists today. I, too bad we don't have eight hours today. But every chef de village then and every chef de village today, and it's very hard for everybody else to understand, knows that he's got to have their team, his or her team. And there has to be a certain trust. So some chef de villages, like my old buddy Ryan Leach, could take anybody they sent to him and manage that team. Others, like Kevin Batt, always needed what we referred to as cowboys, it can be cowboys and cowgirls, but cowboys, the, the 12 people that you trusted so implicitly that they read your mind and, and, and they, they corresponded with your style so well. So we always knew we had to have a few key people, but me, I felt and I saw a lot of geos that I thought kind of had some bad habits. They weren't what I considered really part of the geo family. They were in it for maybe a short time. They just, I didn't feel they were giving their all. And I was like, wow, you know, I never saw that with a first season geo because someone comes in and they're, they're integrated. They're, they're shown by us how to be a great geo. So I had um, the HR team, Gene Robertson, Steve Riley, you know, they were all, uh, Amy Washburn, they're all calling me up. Oh, Hammer, we're so proud. We got a North American geo village coming to North America. Have we got great geos for you? Da, 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 da. You start listing all these names. I went, guys, yes. I said, uh, I need you to send me as many females as you can and as many first season as you can. <laughs> I just had 15 seconds of silence. I said, what, what are you talking about? 
we get all these people. I said, in anything technical, I want these names if possible, these responsive activities, this ski, this, I want Winnie as my chief of scuba, you know, a few requests you make. And I said, give me as many first seasons as possible. <laughs> Why? I said, because I don't want to manage bad habits. But what I do want to do is teach people the true club med spirit. I can teach very quickly how someone can create an emotional attachment with a guest easier than I can to break down bad habits and people who don't want to do that. And they say, oh, okay. And they said, what's with all these females? And I said, guys, let's be honest. First, females are smarter than males. Two, they have way less bad habits. Three, they don't get in as much trouble with bad decisions after they've been partying. And in that day, our, our ambience was to create the party, uh, not just to create a fun time, but even to sell drinks. And I always felt that you're just going to have better decision makers with with uh, with more females, knowing I'd never get a 90% female team. So yeah, for a while, the HR team was just, they were in their office going, this this weirdo wants all these first seasons and, and, and as many women as possible. How is this possible? He even wants a chief of bar, woman. So I took a first season chief of bar. She did great. First season F&B, first season maintenance manager, first season chief of sports. It was awesome. Bring it on. And now they send you to what I think, because I, I visited Sonora Bay. I mean, it, it's beautiful, right? But you you have some very drastic, I guess, heat and cold uh, happening in the desert there, right? Yeah, I mean, Sonora Bay was special. And th there was sort of an unwritten challenge because Sonora Bay was the ideal village, never 100% full, not a massively international group. So it was kind of North American, an old village. I think the company thought it was a little bit more simple than others. So you'd either get Chetvelages on their way out or first season Chetvelages going there. Somewhere in my mind, I felt that was a personal challenge. So I said, well, that's not happening here. We're going to have the best season. We're going to have the best team. But yeah, it was in the desert. It was in the Sonoran Desert. It was freezing, which is why we closed between October and February. And in the summer, it was 105, 106, 107, 108. It was insane. So full of surprises. You know, the old stories in the old days of checking your boots for scorpions every day. And uh, and I think we had a few days in July and August where uh, the maintenance team would cart in fresh ice and put it in the pool just to keep it at a swimmable, swimmable temperature. But yeah, what a beautiful part of the desert. John Wayne had a house. They filmed the, the first Zorro film there with Anthony Hopkins. Catch-22 was filmed there. It was an incredible location. I think that helped. I mean, it was like being in a John Wayne movie in all those scenes of, of Arizona. And when people came there, it was a breathtaking um, location. We had the Club Med concept. And if you could add a great, positive, vibrant team to that, in my opinion, you had a winning combination. A winning combination indeed, sir. Okay, Hammer, before I get to my next question about your first season as the Chief of Village of Sonora Bay, I want to get this next question out of the way because I forgot to ask you the first time I interviewed you. So I want to get it out now before I forget again. In the past three years on this show, I've asked six geos if they've ever pranked one another or organized some kind of surprise for a fellow geo or their girlfriend or, or boyfriend. As a chief of village, did you ever prank or surprise a fellow chief of village? <laughs> you always give the good prompts. I remember in one conversation we touched about uh, surprise. You know, there's a big belief in surprising the GMs during their vacation. And I was a big believer on surprising the, the geo and G team, you know, to get a little bit of a uh, a bit of inspiration, a little bit of a vibe in the village. So uh, I do have one, my friend. In 2003, I'm in Sandpiper, chief of village. And at that time, we had um, Ryan Leach in Cancun. 
And I knew his birthday was coming up. And I don't remember how it popped in my head. I'm sure I wanted to get something shocking going with the team, a real team building event, as well as wanting to prank him and give him a good memory. So I decided at a geo meeting to say, look, I need to get you all to swear to secrecy, but I'm considering a surprise visit to the village of Cancun for the chief of village Ryan's birthday. Of course, the place went kind of crazy. Like, what is this guy? And I said, look, what we could do is I'm going to go. You speak to your manager. If anybody's free to leave for three days and you can ensure that your department is covered, your position is covered. I'll get us booked in a room privately or secretly. I'll take care of all the land transfer. I'll take care of the organization. You just have to be able to uh, afford a flight. So I ended up getting eight takers. I probably couldn't do all the names right now unless I thought, but of course, my two wingmen, Boone and JK, were in. I called one of my uh, partners in crime in Cancun, Vlad, which I think you've done an interview with, Vlad Malin. Yes. And uh, he was the PR in Cancun at the time, kind of a blood brother to both myself and Ryan. So he got the gag right away. So he was awesome when it came to secrecy and organization. As, as you know, he knows everybody in Cancun. So we get the flights, we get the rooms, we get the plan, and the rules were secrecy. See, I don't know how everybody kept a secret. I, to this day, I don't know how everybody kept it secret. I think it was just so unique and out of the box that everybody kept it a secret. So eight of us fly, including my wonderful wife, Julie, to Cancun. Vlad gets a, a private to pick up. We get in this room and we wait, we wait, we wait till around showtime. We sneak around the back and we're on the roof of the uh, kind of the bar and the back of the theater area waiting for the end of the show so we can surprise Ryan during crazy nights. And it starts to rain a little bit. So now we're on the roof, eight people trying to take cover. Of course, Vlad had uh, intelligently found a few cocktails for us to have up there while we waited. And the only other person who knew was Patrick, Patrick Burke, sound engineer, who's now with Cirque du Soleil, good friend. So around near the end of the show, he's got me a second microphone. We come down the ladder in the back. We spread out in the back of the theater because it's still dark in the theater. And Ryan starts his first crazy sign. Well, I have Patrick time to cut Ryan's microphone off, which makes him furious. That was hilarious to see. And mine comes on. And the eight of us spread out and we come from the back of the theater through the audience. We arrive on stage. The duo team starts dying because they know a bunch of us. Ryan is frozen with his jaw dropped. I start speaking and I tell everybody about his birthday, about we're the uh, Geo Sandpiper team. Place goes crazy. We do two team crazy signs. We end up in Ryan's Chief of Village apartment after. So you've got now two team building, meeting each other. And the next morning we flew back. It was a resounding success in terms of birthday surprise, team building, and team building. That was a good one. There's so many moving parts of the story. So yes, like you say, it's amazing that you actually pulled it off and the secret was kept, right? Oh, I, to this day, I do. That could, you could think that would never happen with so many people. Sandpiper was friends with Cancun, vice versa. But uh, I don't think Vlad told a stole over there except the planning, Joe. I think everybody in Sandpiper just appreciated that the value was going to be in the surprise, you know? My favorite part of the story is the one you might not think. And if, you know, you know, I love Ryan. I've, I've said it a million times on the show. He was my first chief of sports. I would have loved to have been there not to see the surprise, but to see the look on his face when his mic was cut. Like, I wish I could have seen that look, okay? <laughs> because, you know, you don't mess with his mic, right? So 
I like I, that's what I would have liked to see just that look you know before you guys came out <laughs> and you nailed it it was the beautiful moment because the cross between anger which you had <laughs> to cover that in front of the gym <laughs> then surprise then shock and then happiness most people would have been happier faster Ryan was still dealing with the uh, the takeover which was awesome that was part of the fun excellent story okay let's get back to Sonora Bay I have a question about the opening night. Did you take the advice you were given about having an opening night party with, with the Geos before you opened on your first day? Man, I'll tell you, you know, like today, and, and I work from the from the training development perspective now to try to help the chef villages. I mean, you go into a village and you, you've got somewhere in the six to 12 day range of a, of a team showing up, try to get them all together to rehearse a show to rehearse your consistent, you know, delivery on the for the client experience, the standards, put everything in place, and then physically get the place ready. Well, as this was in the Sonoran Desert and closed for about five months, and I think there's a storm that it came through, it was closed in a hurry. I looked at this place and I and I took all my management team. I said, "We're not going to be ready," and they said, "No, there's no way we're going to be ready." So I remembered what Frankie had said, and I kept this in mind when we were about. You know, seven days out at, oh, hang on a sec, Greg. Uh, right. Excuse me, buddy. Um, yes. I'm not sure if this is, anyway, it looks like we got a caller here. I got a call in. Uh, we don't have Collins on the podcast, uh, Hammer. <laughs> well, it looks like for the first season, first season Chief of Village episode, we do have a caller. Okay. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, there's no telephone number for it, but I'm curious to see who's on the line. Who, who, who hey, do we have? Hey, here? everybody. Hey, uh, can can you guys can you guys hear me? I, I, am I on? Uh, yes. Who is this? Hello, is... hello. I, I just want to make sure that you guys could hear me. Um, long time listener, first time caller. Okay. This voice sounds familiar. Uh, were you a previous guest on this show, sir? Uh, I, I may or may not have. Uh, this is Boone. Oh, Boone! Oh my God. From first, from Hammer's first season, uh, Sonora Bay. Hammer and Greg, I'm crashing your party. Whoa! Oh my gosh, this is amazing. Well, we did say, Greg, we did say first season Chef de Village. So now we have a first season Geo from my first season Chef Village. Okay, so so Boone was one of these first season Geos that you requested that you knew nothing about, and wow, what happened? <laughs> nothing about, and uh, I'm sure we'll get into it a little bit, but if. For those of you out there who have worked with or met or heard of Boone, ex-Geo, ex-Superstar, ex-Water Ski Show Superstar, ex-Stand-Up Comedian, ex-Now uh, Training Director, King of the World, he was, at the time, possibly what I still say was the shyest person on the team in the first week, believe it or not. You forgot <laughs> ex-Con. You forgot ex-Con. Yeah, I just want to throw that in there. Um, neither here nor there. Studio 54 dancer, but let's go to the party. <laughs> you brought up the party, and Boone, you can help me out. I'm sure. Well, yeah, I mean, listen, you know, that was coming in. I'll tell it from a first season, you know, Geo, one of the few, one of the few male uh, first season <laughs> Geos per, per Hammer's request. But, you know, coming in to that season for me, you know, this was my first club med. I had no idea what to expect. I was nervous. I was excited. And I was one of the ones that got there about a month or so before opening day to help, you know, to Hammer's Point, get the, the village as close to, you know, being open ready as, as possible. And, you know, with so many first season, first season GOs there, we just were trying to figure out, like, where do we fit in? How do we help? And, of course, Hammer being Hammer was smart enough to bring in 
some, you know, top performing geos for us to kind of learn from. And, and, you know, he mentioned Winnie, obviously big red was there, you know, you started to kind of figure things out, but what really kind of drove that mentality of just figuring things out and trying to get the job done each and every day was quite honestly hammer. I mean, when I first got there, those first few weeks, I honestly thought there was a twin. I thought hammer had a twin because everywhere you look, there he was like, you know, I was on the water ski team then. And so we were trying to get things up open, open there, but you'd look up and hammer was with the reception team. And then you'd look up a little bit later, boom, he was with the bar team. And then you look up a little bit later and then boom, he's with, you know, the snorkeling team, the, you know, scuba diving team, windsurf sailing, then boom, he's with us at the ski team. And he's sincerely asking us, Hey, how are you guys doing? What do you guys need? You know, what is it that I can do to help? And he just kind of exuded this, you know, contagious energy. And quite honestly, I look at Hammer as being one of the most contagious leaders I've ever had. And so it started building this vibe amongst the team where it was like, Hey, you know, we're going to pull together and figure this out. But as we got closer and closer to opening day to hammer's point, like we knew we were not going to be ready. Like, and, and we didn't want to relay that information, you know, per every, you know, uh, you know, responsible, whether it be chief of ski, you know, we didn't want to relay that information to our chief of sports or, or hammer because we just didn't want to see that look at disappointment because we wanted to work so hard to ensure that we were going to be ready. But when we weren't and we knew it wasn't going to happen, I remember that meeting, you know, we're, usually those meetings, those team meetings were energetic. They were fun. We were just, you know, all this energy and spirit. But this particular meeting was, it was quiet because we all knew like, man, we're just not there yet. What are we going to have to do? How are we going to figure this out? And I'll never forget sitting in then that, you know, group of GOs, you know, close to 200 of us. And a few minutes after the meeting supposed to start, in walks in hammer with the other, you know, the other chiefs and he walks to the front of the room and he wasn't upset. He, he just had this calm, cool and collected look on his face. And, and he just kind of scanned the room and I don't know exactly what he said. And obviously hammer, you can chime in with, with what you remember, but I just remember something to the point of, Hey, listen, you know, in the next couple of days we have close to 600 GMs coming in and we're not ready. And you can just feel everybody in the room just kind of absorb that and like, oh, my God. It's like when you have to tell your parents bad news and you just don't want to see that upset look on their face. That was kind of the feeling that we had. And so before we could get lost in our thoughts of, all right, you know, what is it that we're going to have to do to get as close as possible? How much are we going to have to work? How many more hours are we going to have to put in before we could even get lost in those thoughts? Hammer chimes in with. So with that being said, let's party. And when he said that, everybody's kind of like a record just stopped. Like, you know, a DJ just just stops the record and everybody's kind of looks. And really, it was this surprise on our end. But to him, he had this grin on his face. He says, hey, listen, you know, yeah, we're not ready. But with this team, we are going to figure it out. And I want to celebrate each and every one of you. So tonight we're going to party and we're going to get ready to rock and roll over these next couple of days. And no, we're not going to be ready when those GMs come in but they're going to have no idea. And so that night we partied and he led us to the, to the disco. And as we got closer, you could hear that, that late nineties techno music, right? Yes. Lights going off. And we walked in and full buffet bar team was there. And I mean, quite honestly, that to me as a first season, Joe set the tone on how we were going to perform that season. And, and it was just a genius, you know, idea and, and well, you know, leveraging somebody else's idea, but a genius time to implement it right then and there 
to just drive that energy and the spirit of that team that season. It's awesome to hear Boone say it that way, Greg, because it's like I was telling you with the uh, the tidbits that you pick up from ancient Shafalaj and what Frankie Gagan had said. When you look at the why, the famous start with the why, and you look at the method to the madness, the point of it was well understood by me way before. It was that you're going to have a lot of problems in a season or a lot of challenges, and you want to try to condition your team when there's a problem to go, good, let's deal with it. Let's have some fun and deal with it. So it's an unwritten demonstration at the very beginning to share, as Boone says, I mean, I'm, what he felt is what I was hoping everybody would feel. You're like, first of all, this leader dude is not even stressing, it seems like. So how can he say it's not going to work, but now we're going to have fun? So you teach people already to overcome those sort of things. The other one is you got to make sure that geos who are working all the time in the day and, you know, no one's doing it for the money, feel valued before you start. So we had, that was an elegant dress code that night. The cuisine team, as Boone says, was dressed in their best and they made a gala buffet. So the idea is that, well, wow, if I'm this important, maybe I feel a little bit better about doing this job. So there was definitely a method to it and it was a great party. And the next day, you're still painting chairs. You're still not quite ready. You've still got a lot of hangovers, but you had 345 smiles. And that's what the GM saw first. So it was a great first impression. Doesn't mean work with a hangover. But it, uh, it was that's good. actually when I learned how to work with a hangover, to be <laughs> honest with you. And then it was like, oh, I can actually do this seven days a week, man. OK, all right, let's rock and roll. But, you know, yesterday, then and today, you the club is expert at reactivity. Because is our expert at masking something that a guest might see that isn't perfect with the team or with energy or with ambience or with that fun vibe. It's why you don't have just the local staff in every club night. Local staff are great. The services are run great. But you can't show and create that creative solution. And you can't create that emotional attachment as easy in a regular hotel as you can with Geo. So we, in that season, we did not have all the means. And we were creating stuff left and right. It was all about entertainment, which is why I fell so quickly into it. Give you an example. I went and recruited who I thought was going to be the best choreographer in the world while I was in Jabal on stage. She arrived in the village, was energetic, bubbly, had all these ideas. I saw her shows on paper. And then we did the first rehearsal and I had 35 geos looking at me in this, on stage like they wanted to kill me. She could not teach a number of her life depended on. And I was like, oh my God, what are we going to do? So the Friday night, open, excuse me, the Friday night of the first week. So we open. And the Friday night is that big last week with the big club med show and the gala buffet. And we're going to end this with tears in the eyes of the guests. And we got no show. So Creativity 101, we talk to the mariachis and the local show. Our Friday night becomes the Friday night Mexican evening. And we did the uh, local show the mariachis were in. We were giving tequila to the whole world. Mexican buffet with a gala touch. You know, bullcrap over brains works every time, Greg. <laughs> Yeah, well, but so entertainment, entertainment became really the the highlight there, and uh, that was my bag, and and a lot of the people that I did bring in were into entertainment, and then as Boone and many other people will attest, all of a sudden he gravitated towards those shows, you know. And another challenge you face as a first season chief of Village appeared to be more geographical. It looks like you had a problem getting the GMs to the nightclub, and if you can tell us how what creative solution you came up with. Great point, because right away we knew how great the nightclub was because that's where we had that first dinner and we stayed there as a team. We, we thought it was perfect. 
So we mixed and matched to create good entertainment in the center of the village. You know, we had a great cuisine team. Now I said, well, how are we going to get these people to the nightclub at the other end of the village? Because we still had to make money at the bar. And we still wanted people to enjoy their end of the evening or they would feel not 100% satisfied. So again, I don't know who got together, but we were very open-minded. We let everybody speak. And as Boone says, my thing was, even if I had doubts, I consciously positioned first seasons in a lot of our meetings and get-togethers to, to value their opinion, which wasn't culturally always the thing to do in Portland, but I thought it was a good idea. So somebody came up with the idea, let's do a shooter walk. And we were like, a what? We're going to set up tables manned by geos with different shooters all the way down to the nightclub. And someone goes, well, they got to be free. And I'm like, well, how are we going to make money with free? Said, no, no. But they'll drink the free booze until they get to the nightclub, and then they're going to buy the booze. So we we put together the old Club Med Sonora Bay shooter walk. And, you know, first person would stop for a tequila. And, oh, you got to go to the next table. You got Zambuca there. And then at Zambuca, oh, you got to go to the next table. You got uh, Jaeger down there. And we just enticed the people down to the nightclub. And uh, by the time they got to the nightclub, they were ready to roll. And uh, what used to be a semi-quiet village became one of the best nightclubs in the uh, in the zone. I have to ask you this story because previous guest who was who was on, on your team mentioned Phil Gordon. Okay. I'd never heard this story before. So Phil Gordon, two years after you two worked together, was in the World Series of Poker, finished fourth. He won $400,000. So how the heck, Hammer, did Phil Gordon come to uh, work in your resort? And I believe he was at the bar. Yes. And he wrote poker books, which are on my shelf yes. as we speak. Yes. How did that happen? It's funny. And we're not referring to alcohol again when I say I don't remember everything. No, but Phil <laughs> okay. Gordon literally showed up on our doorstep. And this is Sonora Bay. I mean, this is the middle of nowhere. He shows up on the doorstep. And Phil Gordon's about six four, maybe six five. And I just remember he's either playing. I think he was already playing volleyball. He was destroying the volleyball courts. Maybe you remember some of that. But I'm talking to him and he, you know, he asks, in the day, which is kind of how I started Club Med, you would have people do a short-term stint with you with minimal administration. I mean, they would just either be a guest on vacation or show up. And he says, you know, I play volleyball, I do this. And I just sold my software company. And I'm like, what? Yeah, yeah, I'd like to hang out and be part of your geo team. And, you know, I didn't hesitate because you could tell he was a nice guy. And that was my bag, nice guys in first season. And here's this guy who's walked away from big time money to be attracted to make people happy. That has to be sincere. So the next thing you know, Phil Gordon became part of our bar team. Okay, excellent. And he took some of my money, just FYI. <laughs> okay, I was going to ask if, if there was a geo poker poker game. <laughs> on, the, on the poker table, but never on the volleyball court. Okay. <laughs> That's what I should, I should have bet on the volleyball. That's what I should have done. Well, if we could get back to the, uh, the the bar, you know, you guys, you know, developed the shooter walk and all that. But there's this disco painting story I'd like to know more about involving this Kevin Painter Hill. Could you talk a, a little bit about it? Well, hey, that? Greg, before yeah. we get to that, Ham, I yeah, was yeah. going to ask you because if you like that shooter walk, I mean, I, we used to, we used to fight over who was going to man those, those tables because, you know, if we were giving out free shots, well, you know, one for the GM, one for the GL, that's just how it goes. Right. So <laughs> you would always have people, you know, willingly wanting to man those stations. And then as you're, you're guiding those GMs into the, into that disco and that disco, I, I man was just phenomenal right on the beach is this was a little bit of a walk so that idea was just genius to do that to just entice people to go there you know had a great dj christo i think that was one of his i think his first season as well he was dj back then before he became animator but you know that 
spirit and that energy of that disco also translated into you know when you talk about those shots some some very famous shots with the president back then Philippe Bourguignon who came to visit and I know Hammer you you were definitely involved <laughs> in that experience so what did we make them do I'm trying to remember let's go painter and then Philippe Bourguignon because painters are still a legend because what you were talking about there Greg and Boone, as you say, as we did the shooter walk and we got everybody up to the nightclub, the nightclub was unbelievable location. But inside was this cement. I mean, it was a massive cement structure. It could have withheld a, a nuclear attack. And the walls were horrible. You couldn't post anything on it. They were this stucco that was a mess. It was, it was the weirdest construction of all time. And so the set designer, first season, again, which I, I think, as uh, Moon says, and I believe in the first season, never heard of him, super shy guy. I mean, so reserved, you can't believe it. But we were watching him do the designs for the shows. And he wasn't building stuff. He was painting on all these sets. But what he painted was extraordinary. He said, this, is, this guy needs to be making millions of dollars and putting stuff in a museum. But anyway, painter's there. Kevin Painter Hill. I think, did we nickname him Painter or was he already Painter? I might have been there. He, he he says, can I do something with a nightclub? Because it's so boring. I said, of course. I want to paint. I go, well, how can you paint on that surface? He goes, well, I'll give it a try. Then he starts going around the village. Can I take a picture of you? Can I get a picture of you and Julie? Can I get a picture of Big Red? And yeah. So he takes a picture. And this is 1998. You're not talking iPhone quality. Gets a picture of us. And from the picture, he paints our profiles, if you will, on that horrible surface nightclub. And the paintings looked like a photo. So, I mean, I don't know how many years they stayed there. I guess they did become kind of legendary, not necessarily because of the people, but because of the context and the, and these pictures. So I'm sure somebody came there later and said, All right, we can't have these pictures of the old team. We need us on the wall. But we we stayed there for a while. Yeah, the, the picture of Red, a profile side shot of him drinking a beer was uh, was legendary on that disco wall. So now we're in the disco. And now we're famously succeeding in the disco. And as Boone says, we changed leadership in Club Med and Philippe Bourguignon, the new president and his leadership crew is coming to Sonora. And we're like, well, nobody comes to Sonora. And we're like past pride, proud. And I'd remembered something from the culture of Club Med that I wasn't a big fan of. And that was when the big boys were coming into the, the villages, everybody got ready for them. And bought something new and changed. I said, well, wait a second. If they're coming in to see the village, they got to see the village what it is. I said, let's be at our best, but we're not changing anything. I was stubborn. I got advised against it. I was a bit of a pain in the butt. I didn't even pick them up in nice vehicles. So he came, but we also got something. It was probably the whole team. I don't remember. I had a lot of bad influences like Boone. And we're like, well, if we're going to show them one thing, Hammer, we got to show them the Sonora Bay party. So we got... Um, Philippe Bourguignon, this is the head of Club Med, and regardless of 98, it was still a you know, massive respect and appreciation, a little bit of fear even, that we've got the big boys and girls in town. And Eric Turner, who was our first season chief of sports, who came from the mountains, he was a ski instructor, a lot of Copper Mountain. He says, well, we got to show him how to do a flaming Zambuka shot. So, oh, no. So we bring all the craziest gals and the craziest gaijos in, they start demonstrating flaming Zambuka. Well, the next thing you know, you got this group, I mean, they're flaming Zambuca, body shots, flaming Zambuca. And I'm kind of looking at this going, am I going to have a job tomorrow? But <laughs> they just 
were so enamored by the team and that. I mean, of course, it was done tasteful for the time. It wasn't over the top or anything. But they weren't used to having that type of level of a party. So it was it was sincere was the point. It, the Geos were loving them having a good time. And they were loving seeing Geos really having a good time. And so the Flaming Zambucas became kind of legendary. So each village they went after, they were going nuts going to the uh, the food and beverage manager. Make sure you order Zambuca for the village. So everybody wanted to compete with our uh, our party. Successful part. Let's do an animation story because I, I love this one that Boone had recounted. So I'll just vaguely mention, okay, one arm and Pisatier Boone. If you can tell me what what, what, ha- what happened that night uh, there. Okay. And maybe explain explain the gag for people who might not know. Oh, seen it. man. Well, I'll have Hammer explain the bit. Well, actually, I'll start with Hammer because, you know, as Hammer explains the, the bit, then it'll, it'll make a lot more sense of what was occurring in the audience. I'll do the background and then. Boone will give the reality. So interesting because when you go back far enough again, many of those early chef delages that we spoke about earlier, they were inventing these sketches. They were a lot of slapstick, a lot of physical comedy, a lot of European, a lot of French comedy, and excellent international comedy because they didn't have words. They were very, like I said, physical, so they worked for every audience. Well, there was a famous sketch called Pissotier, which came from the image of a gentleman that walked into a public toilet and had to go to the bathroom, but had no arms. So, of course, he tries to entice the gentleman beside him. Could you help me out with no talking, all physical and great facial expression? And, of course, at the end of the sketch, the gentleman with no arms that was helped opens up his two hands from underneath his jacket and goes, thank you very much, because, you know, he just kind of enticed the gentleman to help him. But it was great comedy. And, of course, it started with, the impression that the gentleman who walked on stage had no arms. So Boone, take it away. <laughs> so, you know, that week we had a really, really awesome GM, uh, uh, like many of them were. And this particular gentleman, I think he was from California, was missing an arm. And, you know, no big deal, whatever. And, uh, but got to know him throughout the week and had dinner with with him and his family and, and just a really cool guy. And so I was joining them for that show because it was early on, earlier on in the season. I had seen that number before. Like I knew the because of this particular night, I knew the order of all the numbers, and I think this was you know towards the latter part of the show. So as we get like closer to it, a light bulb goes off in my head, and I'm like, "Oh no, this wait a minute, Pissy Tours is next," and I'm sitting to this guy with one arm who's like the sweetest guy in the world. I'm like, "This can't, this can't happen." There's the, so I go, I say, "Excuse me," and I leave. And I head backstage and there's hammer in that overcoat, you know, the arms underneath with the, you know, the, the, the painting, the face painting, you know, the, the, with the red on the nose and the cheeks and everything. And I like hammer, dude, you cannot do this number. And he's looking at me like, I'm crazy. He's like, what, what are you talking about? You know, this is the next number. I go, no, 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 you can't do it. There is a GM out there in the middle of the audience that has no arm. And then for the hammer, it just the light bulb kind of clicked. And I don't know what number ended up going next to replace it. But luckily, <laughs> that number didn't continue. Now, whether or not that person would have been offended, but I, I think it just was, you know, just that understanding of let's not, let's make sure that our chief of village isn't put in that situation where something could potentially go wrong. And it's a it's a great example, too, how the the club had to evolve with the world. Because I remember that gentleman getting a kick out of the story after, which might not be the case today. And respectfully so. That, that's correct. 
but it was a long evolution in um, in the entertainment. But anyway, no, there was a lot of those type of uh, reactivity and and last minute stories. But the the entertainment was was a highlight there. And again, when you go to the position of Chef Village and even the other managers, the sports manager, again, you can't compare it to another resort because it was almost an unwritten rule that the Chef Village needs to be in something. Today, you'll find a Chef Village on stage or you'll find them DJing. You know, they'll spell out the DJ. We have a, a beautiful uh, event these days in many villages called the Sunset Ritual. And you'll often see the Chef Village doing the, the music for that very animated DJ. So leading by example was was a big part of that. I just got to tell a, a quick story. Around that time, near the end of Cerro Bay, I knew I was going to go next to Copper Mountain and uh, brought some of the team from there to Copper Mountain. And in fact, brought a famous couple from Sonora Bay who was with us, Stinky and Chantel, brought them uh, with me to Copper Mountain after. And then a year later, as many listeners will know, they passed away on their way up to... Uh, to Crop Mountain the year following. So sad story, but part of that emotional attachment of the club. So always was involved in entertainment, but one, another person who taught me so well that was uh, American chef of Greg Snyder, who remains a good friend. I was in Cancun with him, and he was telling me about Copper Mountain. And, um, you know, here you are looking for advice, and he gives me his number one advice. But again, it's like the party. He says, Hammer, every year, all of the ski instructors of the entire area of Copper Mountain ski down the mountain at midnight, from top to bottom, holding flares. And I mean, how many flares? Two flares. Two flares with two hands? They ski with no poles? Yeah, they ski down in the dark with the flares burning in their hands. And he goes, Hammer, you're the chef Village. you got to do it with them. And I'm like, oh, this is great. I mean, great used to be a ski instructor. But I did it. It was one of the most fearful moments of my life. But it's the perfect example of the more you are with the team yesterday and today the more bond is built and as Boone talked about the, in the party you get an impression as silly as it sounds well if this guy could rehearse till midnight with us or this guy can help us pick up some bags and this guy's nice with the guests and he's acting with such positive maybe I guess I better do the same thing so this is why I love doing the entertainment. And, and, and when you saw a talent like Painter and Boone on stage and Big Red, and you saw these people who could make the, the, the guests laugh and fall in love with them, man, for me, it was always success through entertainment. Well, speaking of Boone on stage, if Boone, you wouldn't mind telling a story. Uh, again, it involves another gym in the audience, kind of a, a special guest, but you had no, no idea who it was and you were doing the secretary's number. Do you <laughs> mind uh, telling us the story? Yeah, well, I mean, just to echo Hammer's point on entertainment, I mean, Hammer was in every single show and, and just being able to see how he led by example and, and really, you know, providing all of these first season geos that opportunity to get on stage. And for those of us that have never been up there, I think my first number was with my ski team with Mike and Mark, Mark and Mike Lemire doing its raining men. And I was willing to do anything and everything. And it was just fun to, listen to that crowd response and getting that laughter. And and then as I watched more and more numbers ranging from, you know, like you said, secretaries to the Rocky horror picture show, like I was willing to do anything and everything. And so, um, you know, as I learned these numbers and the cool thing about these numbers, they had been around for years, but you got to kind of put your own spin on it. It didn't have to be done the same way. I mean, you could have had 
20 geos do that specific number yeah you had the same foundational pieces but you could put your own kind of personality to it right so i got invited to do that number and i was like oh man i'm so excited and i had seen that number done by jerry lewis so i was familiar with it and then saw other great geos do it that season as well so when i got asked to do it and again this is dating us you know like hammer said no no iphones back then well i had a cassette a cassette recording of that number that i you know after partying at night i'd go home put it in my cassette player and then I would listen to it, you know, listen to it, practice, listen to it, practice, and just keep practicing, practicing, practicing. And so I felt good with it. And then boom, I had a chance to do it on stage and it had to been like maybe my first or second time doing it. And you go out in the crowd and you get two two male GMs, grab one guy that I thought might be good, put him up there, dress them up in, you know, the, the secretary outfit, grabbed another guy that I thought might be good, brought him up to the right side of me and got him dressed up. And as we went through it, First guy I brought up, ah, he was okay. But the second guy, man, he was a ham. I mean, he was just bought into it. He was totally making that number better than what it would be if it was just me. I mean, he was phenomenal. He even fell like off the chair, just adding some additional humor to it. And so when we were done, you know, thank them, walk them off. And, and I was like, man, you, you're hilarious. Thank you so much. And he was just the sweetest guy in the world. Well, I go backstage getting undressed and a couple of the geos come up to me and they're like, and I think even Heidi, who was our costumer, was like, do you know who that was that you brought up on stage? And they're like, no, <laughs> the guy that was the the total ham, the guy that totally played into it. She goes, that was hammer's dad. And I thought she was joking, but then she was like, no, that legitimately was hammer's dad. And I'm like, Oh my gosh. Did I, Oh my God, what did I do? And then I got nervous and I was like, oh my gosh, I can't be like brought the chief of village dad up on stage. I had no clue, no idea. Of course, Hammer being Hammer thought it was hilarious. His dad thought it was hilarious. And, you know, being able to meet them for the first time, his dad and his mom, and seeing him in, in future uh, Club Med Villages, you know, that's always a story that we would uh, reminisce about. I could never have imagined, Greg, a better win-win-win. Someone runs back backstage to tell me who's what's happening so i run at the back of the theater so i can watch so i'm dying laughing a because it's my dad b because boone doesn't know it's my dad and c because boone's doing it so well i know again i'm always thinking team building i know at the end of that boone's impacted because he knows that it was okay and all these so watching those things happen and watching a, a group of guests be happy because of it, but watching your team grow while they're doing these things. I mean, that that's the club. That's the club spirit that, that, you know, as we shift into today, it's still there. It happens a lot naturally, but it needs to be accompanied along. And still today, the ones who are best positioned to accompany it along are the chef de because they have a, a view over everything. But the challenge throughout each decade, even for me, became... The balance. How do you find the time when to be on stage, when to be showman, try to be everywhere, but now you've got better uh, product and services and need a little bit more follow-up. You've got more IT, more communication, quicker communication. You've got uh, higher expectations from the guests. I mean, we moved upscale. We moved to a higher price. So when we were in Sonora Bay, I would make a best guess that most of the guests were policemen, firemen, salespeople, managers, West Coast, pretty laid back. A lot of Club Med today are doctor, doctors, lawyers. You go to Club Med Michis, which is an exclusive collection product, they're CEOs. 
And so as a geo, we could break the bonds or we could make that disconnect between maybe status and 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 position back home and break it down and everybody's on the same wavelength. And when you have guests on stage with you and you're having a glass of wine at dinner and telling stories, that breaks down the bonds like we did in 1950. That's still the goal. And it's still the chef de village who has to see that happening and uh, see the best way forward. But first seasons, entertainment, creating a, a fun ambience, a fun party, those were and, and still are great tools to bring people together. Let's talk about another key position in the village, and it's someone near and dear to you. Now, I think this person you know was one of the last people to have the position of chief of hostess, correct? Ah, good one. You saved me again from yes. getting in trouble. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> True enough, in the mid-90s, after decades of, you know, almost single-handedly chief, chief of villages wandering around and getting to know guests and finding out what made them happy and when they had a problem and always solution-orientated, like today, it became too heavy because as the world changed and the expectations went up, there was even people looking for air conditioning. Well, there wasn't air conditioning for the first 35 years. So now you had more chances for problems, reclamation. So we had to build a reception. Keep in mind, to the mid-90s, there was not really a reception desk in Club Med. It was a chief hostess, chef hostess, always a smart, often multilingual, charming, normally woman, because again, as I told you earlier, more intelligent, less ego. And they would be selling the bar beads. So people had to go buy the bar beads. And it was there that the, the smart chef hostess and the hostess teams would try to find out how's everything going. And they would search for problems. Then they would either find a solution or get that problem to the right person. They became the customer relations liaison club that they didn't exist before. So as the receptions got built, they were slowly moving out. So Julie, my wife, in Sonorbe was, yeah, one of the last uh, chef hostess, but she had a great hostess team there and that chair front and center so everybody could go by. And uh, luckily, I married a, a customer service queen. She'd tell you she was also an entertainment queen, but she was, I guess she was both. <laughs> she was almost a discoverer of, of Boone because we were at one of our first meals in the staff cafeteria. You know, the restaurant's not even open. It was maybe 15 people in the village. And I saw this guy sitting over the top with his cap pulled down his head almost hunched over, which is, can be a boon look today, too. And I just looked. I know he wasn't, but I said, oh, my God, Julie, go talk to that shy guy over there. And on a, about a week later, uh, Boone can maybe touch on this because he told me the story about a week ago. He remembers I was having about 15 people over at the house, the, the apartment with Chef Alain. And I, I don't think we even called him Boone yet, but I told Julie, I said, go find that Joe guy because you can just see something in him, you know. And so it was funny because she went out searching as we did sometimes to make sure there was some first season with us. But when you were telling me that, that Julie came looking for it. Let me just back up a little bit, clarify, Greg. I wasn't that much of an introvert, okay? As much as Hammer paints me (laughs) as this hermit that I definitely was quiet uh, when I came in uh, my first season, those first few weeks. And, and, but, you know, even at that age, I, I knew that I needed to see what the hell I was getting into. You had also, two ears and one mouth, Joe. And then, <laughs> and then you know, where I could fit in and where I could contribute and, and just trying to figure out like, all right, what is this thing that is club med? And luckily having a chief like, like hammer who, you know, created such an environment where you, know, you could explore and you, you could 
you know, uh, do different things and you didn't have to have two or three years or two or three seasons under your belt for your first season and you wanted to do it and you could, you know, demonstrate some, some competencies to be able to do a number or, you know, a sport or whatever that might be, you were going to be provided that opportunity. So early on, I just had to figure out like, you know, how do I just contribute to the team? How do I ensure that, you know, I'm performing at a level that, you know, Hammer would be, would be proud of. So I was at the bar one night and of course, and Julie comes up and she's like, Hey, you know, the guys are waiting for you at the, at the apartment. And I kind of look at her. I'm like, what, what do you mean? She's like, no, the, the guys are waiting for you. They're, you know, they're watching a hockey game. Once you go up to the, to the apartment. And I really didn't know. I didn't know if I was going to get hazed. I didn't know really what that, you know, meant, but I could tell Julie was authentic and sincere about it. And, you know, of course I, I trusted her from the moment I met her and, and hammer. And so I was like, okay. So I, I grabbed a beer and, and walked to, to their apartment. And uh, I heard, you know, heard people, on the other side of the door and, and you could hear the hockey game playing. I just kind of, you know, lightly knock and so I can't remember who it was and, you know, say, Hey, come in. So I walk in and, you know, there's, there's hammer and red and, and Eric Turner and, and Winnie and, you know, a bunch of other people that tenured, you know, geos that are watching this game and they invited me in, welcomed me in. And, and I sat down with them and I had no, I, and if, you know, no clue about really what was going on in, in the hockey game. I didn't really watch it, but being invited into that environment, it just kind of felt like, okay, I've got, I made a little bit of an impact to where, you know, I had a little bit of respect. And I think, you know, knowing that between Hammer and Julie and, and some of the tenured geos, they saw something in me and they wanted to make sure I felt included, but they also really kind of were big brothers and sisters to me and really kind of put their arms around me and kind of showed me that way to being a geo. And so, you know, I look at that moment as like, okay, I, I kind of made it to a certain degree. And, and now it was a matter of how can I do more and how can I ensure that, you know, I'm, I'm really making these, these guys and guys and gals proud. Reminds me of something else, Greg, my wonderful wife did for no matter what job she had, what managerial position she had almost every night for all those years, I would go to the restaurant and, and tour the tables and do a quick hello to everybody, usually during dinner. And at that, during that, she'd be setting up our table. So she would always grab one, Jill, maybe a, another manager, and then about five guests that she thought I would have something in common with, invite to the table, and I would show up halfway through the dinner to uh, join the table. So she was like creating the captain's table uh, before the captain's table was invented, probably. Pretty funny. Anyway, want to slide a little bit, Greg, into today because... With GOs that exist today, chatelages that exist uh, today, of course, and this this position, this idea, this culture, this seventy four, almost seventy four year evolution has so many things that that stayed, and most of the things that exist today are what Boone and I are talking about. It's that feeling, that ambience, that impression of the first season, that entertainment, that put a smile on people's faces. What can be called either the club med culture or often club med spirit. And I always translate that into we were there to create an emotional attachment. And you lived it. All three of us lived it so much uh, more in the past. But I still see it today when you've got guests that are crying like a baby when they leave. Not just the kids, but the adults. And we always tell that story. You know, they're not crying because of the beef Wellington. They're crying because of the people they got to know. So that's still what 
carries on today for sure. And I know uh, earlier we were chatting about the XGOs. I mean, there's the small XGOs and whatnot. But I remember when we did the first, I guess you could call it a sanctioned XGO, where the commercial team was involved and Kevin really had the lead and I was the chief of village and South Piper. And then we did it in Cancun after. I mean, we had 450 XGOs attend that and 11 ex-sheptivalages were there. And it's funny, the need to maintain that attachment to the ambience and the relationships that you created, it's still what a ex-sheptivalage is leading today. They all do it their own way. And um, the teams, when they're on their game, are still doing that. They all do it now in a, a higher level of product and services, higher expectations of the guests, but along with a nicer room and nicer equipment, maybe at the sports or nicer dress codes, the base of that pyramid is still the relationship with the people, the vibe, the positive vibe, the energy on stage, the crazy signs. Would you not agree, Boone? <laughs> huh? How's that? I concur. No, I think it's, it, you said this a couple of times and, and it, it just, I just, it sticks out to me, the emotional attachment. And I think it's it, it goes for GOs, GEs, GMs. I mean, I know Hammer had a number of GMs that were not just emotionally attached to the villages that he was leading, but they were emotionally attached to, to him as, as a chief of village. And I know there's a number of them that went to whatever, you know, village he was he was at. But I mean, this just the three of us talking. I mean, Greg, you're going on three years of this podcast, you know, hopefully you can invest a little bit and get out of your closet, but you know, Hey, we'll do a GoFundMe for you for that reason. <laughs> Thank you. But I mean, like, this is just a great example of that emotional attachment to not just an organization, but, a, but a, a culture, right. Just a culture and experience that people had with, or still have with, with, with club med. I mean, you know, this is a podcast of, except for Hammer currently, but we are ex-employees. I don't know, Greg, how many people you've interviewed, but I'm sure it's a lot because you've been doing this for three years. And a lot of people love listening to these podcasts and listening to these stories because of that emotional attachment. XGO reunions, those are, I tell people about this and they're like, you mean you? there's a group of ex-employees that get together and celebrate and party? And I'm like, and to us, it's like, yeah, that's, seems normal but to everybody else it's like that's crazy and you know i don't know too many podcasts i don't see like an ibm x ibm employee podcast where it's like hey larry tell me about that accounting mistake you found in 97 i mean just groundbreaking like you, you're not gonna get that anywhere else other than than club med and and it's because of that emotional attachment but quite honestly that shows the importance and the impact of a strong Chief of Village, because the Hammer's point, yeah, they're responsible for a ton of things from a business perspective, through a financial lens, absolutely. But the good ones look at that role as an opportunity to make an impact on a GM's vacation and on a GO and, and, and GE's life and, and career. So, you know, it all kind of comes together, but it honestly begins and ends with, with that Chief of Village. And, you know, you can always jump on that. It's still a unique point compared to uh, to all other hospitality uh, groups. Henri, who's an incredible leader all these years, came from the business world. Many people in the leadership roles of all the different zones of use come from the business world. 
a lot of the managers now today, uh, because we're a little short on future managers versus the growth as we build new villages, have been recruited directly from another company to come in as a F&B manager or a bar manager. But never in 73 years has there ever been a chef de village externally hired and never will be. Every chef de village came from GE or Geo and came through the, they have to have embodied and understood the culture. But on the other end, moving forward, I'm in the corporate world, ex-chef de large. Kevin Bat was working uh, in the operations alongside me, ex-chef de large. In the Comité General, the, the, the worldwide VPs, the leadership of Club Med, who report to Henri today, you still have Gino Andretta there, ex-chef de large. So the chef de villages are built within the club, and that culture passing responsibility that they have is then continued upwards because it has to continue. And I got to give you that shout out today because when in our zone, if you will, our BU, you've got Cancun with Abdel, incredible chef village, been, been delivering great results for years. This guy can walk around the village. It's a show, great. He'll walk around the village and you'll see a hundred guests and he'll know every single one of their first names. It's legendary. Hugo is in uh, Punta Cana. Patricio, Italian Mauritian, incredible on stage. Mitches. Francis, a fellow Canadian in Charlevoix. Kevin Gagné, fellow Canadian in Columbus. Jose Luis, Mexican in Turquoise. Antonio, Italian in Ixtapa. So tons of different nationalities, tons of different backgrounds, but all still protecting the club med spirit. And to whatever the way they do it, get that team to demonstrate that club and spirit. That's uh, still today. And a big part of my job today is, here I've transitioned and stayed in Club Med. Boone's transitioned in a similar world than what I, position that I'm in today outside of Club Med. And one of the big roles I have is to help prepare the future chapelage. We have the hot chapelage, it's a population. You remember we talked about my stage and then I talked to you about the old one, which was 20 seconds with Joubert. Now they're identified even before they pass as a potential chef de village. And we start working on their competencies and their perspective and their um, approach long before. So important because as we grow so fast and the natural turnover happens, we realize we're behind. So we've actually got to encourage. So what a time in Club Med, the opportunity to be uh, promoted as manager and, and move towards chef de village. We have to accelerate the development to get them ready faster. And we create chef de villages in Club Med, and they become and deserve uh, a lot faster than other uh, other hotels, man. You can you can become a geo de chef de village in five six years today. All right, question back to Boone. So Boone, as I understand, when I interviewed you the first time, you were and this got me quite enraged. You were uh, attending Club Med basically for university credit. And I'm just curious, though, like when you do such an amazing first season and hammer first season Chief of Village, you've got to go back to class. You're probably in a class you, you probably don't want to don't want to be in uh, or listening right now to the lecturer. Uh, what, what, what's, what's, going, what's, what's going on in your head? Are you still back at Sonora Bay? When you're in the oh, class? man, uh, every every hour, every minute, you know, every day. I mean, it was. Uh, yeah. So I, I had the fortunate opportunity of, of working at Club Med my first season, obviously with Hammers first season to get college credit. Now I only had to go for like three months, but I, you know, had signed a contract. So, you know, I had gotten there, I think around March, but I had to leave, I think early September, I think the village closed like mid to late October. So I had to leave early. I had like two days 
to get back home to Washington State, turn and burn and head up to, to Bellingham, Washington, go back to school. And all my Vancouver friends out there that might be listening, you guys know exactly where that is. And yeah, it, it you know, that was my first experience of what it felt like to leave a season, you know, for the very first time. Now, a lot of us out there have felt that two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight times, right? We come back to Club Med and then you end up think leave, you're leaving for the very last time. Uh, but it's still that same feeling though. It's that, that, that kind of hole, that, that gap that you're just trying to find a way to, to fill. And so for me going back to school, man, it was tough. I only had six more months left before I graduated, but to be sitting in classes and then to, you know, I just couldn't sit still. I could not sit still. And then around that six o'clock, seven o'clock timeframe every night, I'd get in touch with my friends. I'm like, Hey, what are you guys doing? And they're like, oh, you know, I'm studying or I'm doing this, I'm doing that. I'm like, well, let's go meet up at the bar. Let's go shoot some pool. Let's go do something. And they're like, Boone, it's Tuesday. Like, what, what are you doing? And I, it just, I needed, I needed something to do. I needed to be entertained or to entertain. It was just, it was so crazy to, to experience that. And I never thought I was going to go back to Club Med. That wasn't really in the cards. But a couple of weeks before I was graduating, I was around, you know, March of 99, Guess who calls me, but the one, the only Chris Hammer Keeley calls me a couple of weeks before I'm graduating. And he's like, hey, Boondoggy, you know, congratulations on your upcoming graduation. Now, number one, the fact that he actually remembered when I was graduating is just a testament to, to him and his leadership and him, you know, his investment in his GOs and in, in making those individual connections. So the fact that he remembered was just mind boggling, you know, to me. And, um, you know, he asked me, he's like, what do you, you know, what do you have lined up? What do you got going on after you graduate? And I'm like, oh, you know, I got a few, I got a few irons in the fire. I've got a few things going on. Greg, I think I told you this story. I didn't have, I had Jack, Jack squat lined up. I had nothing going on after I graduated, no job. I was 22 at the time, single. And I think hammer kind of read through the lines a little bit. And he goes, well, whatever you got planned, just go ahead and drop them because you're going to come to Cancun with me. And when I got asked that by him, you know, I went to my mom and dad and luckily they came and visited me in Sonora Bay. So they got to experience that culture and that spirit and saw me, you know, working in, in that environment. I told him, I said, Hey, I just got a phone with hammer. He's inviting me to go work with him in Cancun. What do you guys think I should do? And they're like, um, no brainer. We'll help you pack. And you tell us when we can come visit. And so, you know, really that first season, really laid the foundation to not just that partnership as you know chief of village and geo but quite honestly as we went into cancun that's where i consider like that friendship really started to to blossom the the bromance if you will between hammer and i and you know i i did the majority of my seasons with him and you know i would have and i i and i felt this the first time i met him that first day i arrived in sonora bay when you know, he greeted me, him and Julie were there at the, the front, the reception area. They greeted me. And I, I, I'm sure you felt this, Greg, with other chiefs of villages. And, and but I felt this with Hammer. But, you know, when you meet somebody for the first time and you're like, yeah, I don't know who this guy is. But if he asked me to run through that brick wall over there, I would do it with no questions asked. And I, with no questions asked. And I don't know why, you know, looking back at it now. I now know because he had that it factor back then. I didn't know what it was. I just knew he had it. What it 
was that he had was just that contagious leadership and that authenticity. And just, you know, when you had that opportunity to work with hammer and for hammer, you just were going to do anything for that guy. And so, I mean, hell, Greg, I went to Sandpiper for him. He asked me to go to Sandpiper and I'm like, why in God's green earth would I go from Cancun to Sandpiper? But that's the trust that I had in him. And that's the impact that, you know, phenomenal chiefs of villages that just get and understand how to take care of their geos and provide them those environments to succeed and to fail, you know, nobody's perfect. And, and, but being able to fail and fail forward and learn from those mistakes and grow from it, you know, hammer was just legendary is legendary for that. And so, you know, thankfully that I did go to Sandpiper, met Susie there, you know, and, and, you know, we've been together you know, 17 years. We have our six-year-old daughter who has been to a number of club meds from Sandpiper a number of times to, to Cancun a number of times. We went to Punta Cana to Portugal and now seeing her in that environment, doing trapeze, closing the nightclub down at, you know, you know, midnight, one o'clock in the morning and just seeing her enjoy that from a GM perspective, you know, really started back in that first season in, in, in 98. And there's, there's times in your life when you have those experiences, but more importantly, have those opportunities to in, interact with great people and great leaders like Hammer, you know, for any chief of village out there, past, present or future, you know, that's the opportunity you have is really laying the groundwork for somebody's trajectory to where they end up in the future. And I can honestly look at where I'm at today and attribute a lot of the things I've had a chance to do in my life to that first season and working with those amazing GOs and GEs and, and working for Hammer. And I know Hammer's going to kill me for for saying this or doing this, but, you know, for, for all of those ex-GOs, for all of those people you had a chance to work with, for those that had a chance to work for you, with you, those, you know, that are working with you now, man, from the bottom of our hearts, man, thank you. You know, thank you for being you. Thank you for being your authentic self. Thank you for being that leader that, you know, any single one of us <clears throat> would to this day, you know, run through a brick wall for you. So just want to thank you, brother. That's just great. Let's bring him back every month, Greg, so he can talk about me. Is that a, is that a tear I hear coming <laughs> down your cheek, Hefe? No, and thank you, Boone. I'll turn that into how we started this podcast, though, and um, it's a beautiful thing in that there's tens of thousands of Boones out there that I talk to all the time that speak about their Shephelah. All those people who spoke to me about Patrick Kelby, all the things I learned from, all my Shetelages, all the Jose's, the Kevin's, the Philippe's. And it comes from that position of Shetelage and that quote of Jim Carrey, which is the greatest currency that we all have is our impact on others. The most valuable currency we have is the impact on others. And that position of Shetelage just happens to be in a place where it impacts so many. So when you take it serious, and when you assume that responsibility of how many people you could impact their lives, and then you get rewarded from it, because everything Boone's saying, I take the compliment, but the funny thing is, I already feel great because of what Boone did with his life. And maybe I had a small bit to do with that, but that's in the heart of every Shetelaj. And every Shetelaj was a Jew. So it's basically from the heart of the Jew. So you, you have to be a Jew to become a Shetelaj, and the Shetelajs have to stay in the company at different levels 
to keep that emotional attachment. Boone just gave a four-minute speech on club metal emotional attachment. That's exactly what it is. I know I overdo that phrase, but that's why we like doing this with you, Greg. That's why I love what you're doing. Um, and Boone's right, the, the bromance and the lifelong relationships you, you create over the years when you're in the villages and the office. I mean, my team, Gilles and Marcelo, they were in the villages. Tens of people in the office were in the villages. It's just a vibe that is so unique. And uh, gracias, Boone. This was more than a pleasure to do with you. And Greg, thank you for keeping this uh, uh, ambassador position that you have going, my friend. Yeah, much appreciated, Greg. Appreciate your 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 hard work and efforts in this. And um, yeah, man, we really uh, love doing these and love listening to them. So kudos to you. Well, no, thanks to you guys for for being here on the third anniversary. Uh, couldn't ask for two better guests. So thanks, thanks so much for sharing your story about uh, your first seasons. I, I, I just want to go back to your comment: ten thousand boons. I'm still I'm still digesting that one, uh, Hammer. Ten thousand boons. I'll translate for you. There's actually only one boon. The profile is uncomparable. The feelings that Boone has about the village and, and why, I mean, Boone and I still work together on club med training. Boone comes to help me in some villages when we train managers. The, the attachment doesn't go away, you know. My point was the feeling he had about all those people and the experiences in the villages and appreciating his chef village leadership is spoken by so many tens of thousands of other geos about their experience in Club Med, about their fellow geos, and about their chef village. Point being that that position, back to the general position of chef village through all these years, has been one that the person in that position uh, is there to, to do exactly that, to impact people, to have them see the value of the club, to have them see how great it is to make people happy on their vacation, to see how cool it is to do a show together, see how great to celebrate together that's the role of a chef so i mean i love it and when i hear boone's words of course i take that as a compliment but in in light of this podcast we're doing today it still exists today there are chefs out there today creating that vibe with hundreds of staff under their responsibility and thousands of guests every week beautiful thing well said well spoken sir well again uh thank you so much uh Boone Hammer for taking the time, and uh, I might start to have might have to have callers call in on a regular basis now because you you started this now, Boone. So uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to workshop it. You know, I'll, I'll tinker. It's a journey. How about if Boone? How about if Boone just calls in on every podcast from now on? Yeah, <laughs> okay. I'll make something up. I'm imp- I can improv. Or Boone all the time. <laughs> no, really. Thanks again so much uh, for helping me celebrate this third anniversary. Thank you, sir. Thank you, listeners. You heard it. Give us a big thank you for our listeners, Boone. Hey, thanks, everybody. And, uh, yeah, kudos again to you, Greg. Much appreciated for the time. All right, everyone. That was the ones and only Hammer and Boone. And thank them for uh, thank them very much for helping me celebrate this third year anniversary. We're looking to one more year. We'll see you all next week. Bye. Ciao.